Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is managing editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we will be talking about The Invisible Man. Lee Wanell, and at this point, I'm sure someone's going to be like, it's Lee Wanell. <laughs> um, I'm going to assume it's Lee. And if I'm wrong, I, my, apologize, my, my apologies to Mr. Wanell. Uh, we're going to be talking about his new adaptation of the Universal Monster film. Uh, and then we're going to talk a bit about uh, his career working with uh, James Wan and then his sort of moving into directing. And then we're going to talk about sort of universal monsters and, and where they're going for where they are going forward. Uh, just a quick note. This is a spoiler free discussion of invisible man. So if you haven't seen invisible man yet, don't worry. We're not going to tell you what happens at the end or anything like that, because while the film was a hit this weekend, it's not like it made like a hundred million dollars and everybody saw it. It was a good hit because it cost only 7 million to make and it made 29 million and that's the Blumhouse model. So uh, that worked out pretty well for everyone involved. And uh, I'm glad it did because I think invisible woman, uh, invisible man is pretty great. Uh, And uh, my review is on the site. Adam, what did you think about it? Uh, I liked it a lot. Um, I don't know. Like, like from the first frame, I just feel like this is a really elegantly well-crafted, horror movie um that also just feels like resonant and real i think it's i I think it's just a really smart way to tackle this particular universal monster um because you know when you think of monster movies you think of maybe the monster's the protagonist maybe there's a bunch of blood and gore um that's not really the case here i i like the idea that the invisible man uh is used as a way to talk about um abuse survivors and uh, you know, gaslighting and disbelief of women. And, you know, really the glue that holds it all together is Elizabeth Moss and her just really stellar performance right at the center of it. But I also think Lee 1L uh, does a really great job of framing it. Like, it, you know, I think something that's really crucial to the movie and I, I think kind of clues you in and in, to the fact that this filmmaker knows exactly what he's doing is that it doesn't show you the abuse. You open with her, the opening scene of the movie is her leaving him. Um, and so then the onus is on you, the audience member, to believe her or not believe her uh, in terms of what went down and how severe the abuse was and what he was doing. You don't get to see it firsthand uh, until, you know, the invisible theatrics start happening. So... I thought that was just a really smart way to like, this isn't just a story about believing women. This is a story that asks you to believe its hero and to believe that this, uh, you know, happened to her and is still happening to her. Um, and then just, I, I think the, you know, the set pieces are really tremendously well-crafted. He does a lot with empty space that I think is really fun and exciting. Um, genuinely one of the scariest movies I, I've seen in quite a while. So just kind of the the whole package. I mean, this is exactly what I want from a Universal Monster movie nowadays. Yeah, you know, the film it kind of reminded me about was another Universal Blumhouse film, and that was Get Out, which is that it's using, you know, it's it's the horror genre, but it's really about a social issue. And that is that social issue is what makes the horror so effective. It's not just like, ooh, what a crazy set of circumstances, but that we're talking about something real. And when you have that reality, it really amplifies the tension and the stakes because what you're getting is something 
immediately recognizable. This is not about like, ooh, how did he turn himself invisible? And what's it like being invisible and life as an invisible person? Like, it's not about that stuff. It's about her and the notion of what's really invisible is, is the notion of domestic abuse that because it happens behind closed doors, you know, it is unseen, but it is very much there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I just was just really struck by like, you know, and this obviously comes in the wake of the dark universe kind of being scrapped. And that was more of like a superhero uh, approach to this. But I just love the idea that, uh, you know, Lee Winnell can come in with this unique take on this and Universal's like, yep, if you can do it, go for it. Well, and I think, you know, to me, this is the upside of failure because The Mummy was a failure. The Mummy, mm-hmm. um, you know, it cost like $150 million to make and I think it made like $31 million on its opening weekend, uh, which is just $2 million more than, than Invisible Man, this new version of Invisible Man that only cost $7 million to make. Um, and I get what, like, I get that Universal was like, oh, well, you know, we have these, these Universal monsters and everyone has superheroes and we don't have any superheroes. And for, I was like, first off, slow the fuck down. You have Fast and Furious. You have superheroes. Um, that's a superhero franchise. I don't know what to tell you. But anyway, yeah. uh, you know, they tried making The Mummy and The Mummy is just, I mean, it's a bad film. Um, but I like the fact that the studio was sharp enough to be like, you know what? Let's not double down here. Let's not go let's not force this and be like well next time we'll get it (laughs) next time if we just cast johnny depp as the invisible man we've got this yeah um and i think it was smart and you know obviously we're all going to clown on dark universe for for quite some time but to their credit they pulled the plug on something that they had built up as this big idea this big concept and when it was clear it wasn't going to happen they pivoted and you know, now you get a successful film like Invisible Man out of it, which I think, to be honest, I think not only did it, you know, obviously it had a successful opening weekend. It strikes me as the kind of film that's going to have legs and be kind of a word of mouth hit as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 29 million against a budget of 7 million is obviously successful. And I think word of mouth is going to be incredibly strong for this, especially because you don't really have, I mean, I guess A Quiet Place 2 comes out uh, towards the end of March? March 20th, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So towards the end. And I think The Hunt is maybe a week. March 13th. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a, not a traditional horror film, but just in the, you know, I feel like this is just a really great example of how you can create a horror movie that delivers on the scares and delivers on what's frightening, but not in any obvious ways. Like this isn't a movie that's full of jump scares. Lee Winnell knows exactly what he he's anticipating horror on audiences who are anticipating scares. So he'll show you like an empty corridor and you're just waiting and waiting, waiting for something to pop out. And then it just pans back to Elizabeth Moss and he just kind of lets it sit there and lets the tension build as you're anticipating something to happen. And sometimes something happens, sometimes nothing happens. Um, sometimes something happens right in front of your face. And that's kind of the, the terror of it with the, you know, the villain being an invisible man. But I just think visually he just has a lot of fun with that conceit and with delivering, uh, you know, giving you a horror movie that you didn't necessarily know you wanted. Well, I think it also puts you very much in that framework of the survivor of just like when, you know, living, when you're living with the domestic abuse, this notion that you're always living with violence and that that violence could happen at any time. And 
when you, when the way that the film puts you in that mindset of just being scared all the time, and it's not like you're necessarily scared of the jump scare that's coming, but it's just that that tension that's always there. And by keeping that tension there, it really does a great job of putting you in the mindset of Elizabeth Moss's character, Cecilia. Like you just you get where she's coming from. Like, and he does that because even if, you know, yeah, like I, 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 you know, thankfully have not been a victim of domestic abuse, but I was able to very much sympathize with her, not because like, Ooh, do I believe her? Or do I not? Cause I, I definitely believed her, but that sense of like, I am always under threat, even though I'm away from him now, I'm always under threat. Um, and I just thought that was just done so effectively. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you never really, get to feel relief throughout this entire movie. No. And, and well, and to me, like w- when you finally get relief is the third act. Cause then it, be, it kind of, it, and I think it's good that you, you kind it kind of changes gears a bit because I yeah. think at some point you have to release the tension. Like the film has to change a bit. And so when it does, I think the payoff is worth it. And I think it doesn't, it doesn't deflate the film. It just, it's that breath that you, have been struggling to take for the previous 80 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I think the, uh, the movie kind of changes a little bit in its third act and, um, kind of switches the, the stakes up a little bit, but in a really fun way. Yeah, um, no, I think it does it in sort of like a necessary way. Like there's some films that are like, Oh, this was this one kind of film and now it's a different kind of film. And I think the connective tissue is still there in invisible man, but it, it it evolves in the way that it needs to evolve to, in order yeah. to sort of carry the story through and not just be this one note of tension sustained for two hours. Yeah. Uh, but I thought, yeah, I thought, you know, for me, like, I'm not someone who's like, you know, ride or die Lee Wanell because he wrote Saw and I think Saw is garbage. <laughs> I hate it so much. <laughs> It's one of the worst films I've ever seen. Um, and I know some people will be like, see more movies. And I'm like, I, I will, but <laughs> you know, it's yes. But Saw is bad. Saw I'm sorry, two? folks. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes. But have you tried Saw two? Uh, no, I have not tried Saw's or Saw three. Okay. You can, I get where this is going. And can, <laughs> I get it. Uh, no. Yeah. The first Saw is just very bad. And then like, I don't really like Insidious that much either. I think it's kind of goofy. To be perfectly honest, even though I really I like, I like, I think Patrick Wilson and, and, and Rose Byrne are, are pretty good, but you know, uh, the, the child is haunted. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> ah, come on, you know? And he's like haunted by like this, like Darth Maul looking motherfucker. I don't know. I, I wasn't really with insidious that much. Was this the basis for Brahms, the boy too? I mean, Brahms, the boy too is like, <laughs> What if Annabelle bought a boy doll? <laughs> like, that's what that is. <laughs> um, so, like, I wasn't really on board. And then, like, I saw Upgrade. And I will say, to Upgrade's credit, Upgrade really is, like, v- like a better version of Venom at one-tenth the price. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, like, it's really well directed in terms of its cinematography and its fight choreography and the way it looks. Like, I mean, it looks way more expensive than it costs. Uh, he really stretched his budget there. I don't like the ending of Upgrade. I think the ending is kind of, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. But for the most part, I still think the film is pretty good. I like Upgrade a lot. I will be talking about Upgrade on uh, Recently Watched This. Okay. But, you know, that being all that being said, all that sort of preface, um, I thought what he did with Invisible Man was 
uh, exceptional. And I thought he really knocked it out of the park. And uh, I'm very happy that he just signed a big deal with Blumhouse and will be consulting on other Universal Monster movies. Yes, hopefully so. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I was not super familiar with Lee Whannell before seeing The Invisible Man, but um, it's the kind of movie that kind of makes you kind of per- prick up your ears and and kind of want to see uh, more stuff from this filmmaker. But I'm also not entirely sure I want... I don't know. I guess the... To move into a larger discussion about the Universal Monsters franchise here, I don't necessarily think every Universal Monster movie has to be like The Invisible Man. Yes, I would actually agree with that because I don't, you know, it it kind of all depends. I do think one of the, I think there are lessons that could be taken from The Invisible Man, but I wouldn't like try to do it wholesale. Like I wouldn't try to be like, well, every film, every Universal Monster movie must now cost no more than $7 million and must also relate to social issues. Yeah. But what I would say is that I think one of the things he did that was really smart is he found a different perspective on the material. Like he didn't just yes. try to redo the 1933 James Whale film. Like he, he said, okay, here's the conceit. I have an invisible man. Where can I go from there? And to be fair, like, I think like that sort of, the idea is like, it's good to have these characters, but like what suits them best? So to, to honestly, to, to kick it back all the way to 1999, I think one of the smarter moves Universal made with The Mummy was to be like, what if we made this an adventure film? Like, rather than a horror yeah. film, we'll just, we just make it a straight-up, like, kind of old-fashioned 1930s adventure movie. Like, that seems good for this character and this villain, and we'll create a... And it works. Like, that Mummy movie is really fun, as opposed to the 2017 Mummy, which, which is bad, you know? And so, like, the thing is, is I wouldn't say, like well, now we need to do a social thriller with The Mummy because I don't know if The Mummy necessarily really works for that because it's a mummy. It's kind of tied into Egyptian folklore and, you know, westernized beliefs about what Egypt is. And it's just kind of in a weird-ass place. So maybe don't do that for The Mummy. But, (laughs) you know, like, I mean, what we've heard kicked around for Bride of Frankenstein sounds like it has potential about in terms of, like, this woman who was created for the purpose of a man and like rebelling against that. Like, what does that happen? You know? And, and obviously if you did Bride of Frankenstein, like that would probably be very different no matter what, because the original Bride of Frankenstein, that film, she doesn't show up till the very end. Sorry. Spoiler for a film that is quite old. Um, (laughs) you know, so it'd have to be different, but I guess what I'm saying is, is like, it's good to have like these universal monster conceits, like as sort of a starting point. But I think, you know, again, if we want to go to the lessons of the dark universe, the lesson is, is don't try to do this one size fits all and be like, well, they can all be superheroes or they can all, they can all be this one thing because they're not going to, it's not going to really work in that, in that realm. Yeah. Well, and I think that's what universal was trying to do. And that's what I had heard that they were trying to do was, uh, with the dark universe, they wanted this to be their Marvel cinematic universe. So they were creating superhero movies, um, which was clear from the mummy, which, you know, was not a horror movie, not even a little bit, um, except for that screen. Um, but it positioned Tom Cruise as like a superhero version of the mummy. Uh, and then was supposed to set up, you know, Russell Crowe is, uh, you know, the Nick Fury that brings them all together and so then you have a superhero version of the Invisible Man, um, which I don't even know what that is. It's just like, oh, look how – I mean, then you get League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is a movie that already exists. Um, 
and is less uh, kooky than kind of the harebrained um, version they were creating here. Or maybe not. It's been a long time since I saw that movie. That um, film is bad. Just in case anyone was wondering, it's not great. It's it's, not great. it's it was so bad it caused Sean Connery to retire from acting. <laughs> um, but I also think, I mean, I, I think there are really good lessons to be learned from The Invisible Man. Uh, the primary one being like let filmmakers do if a filmmaker comes in with a really strong vision regardless of whether it fits in with your predetermined plans for that franchise or other monster movies green light that idea which seems like what they're doing i mean the elizabeth banks is doing the invisible woman um which she's going to direct and star in um but we don't know anything else about that but it has nothing to do with uh lee wennell's movie um or the invisible man and presumably doesn't take place in the same universe and then paul feig's dark army it's supposed to be um, kind of in the vein of those classic monster movies, and it's going to combine the classic monsters with new original characters. Um, there's a movie based on the song Monster Match in the works, which I think is kind of a fun idea, like kind of let them roll. And as long as you keep the costs relatively low, um, it's pretty low stakes. And, you know, if the upside is you get movies like The Invisible Man, then bully for you. I think that's fantastic. Um I do think it would be great if if these, you know, monsters are scary, but I think what the Invisible Man does is consider, like, what is scary in the year 2020? Like, what is a monster? A monster is a domestic abuser. This man who kind of will stop at nothing to torment this woman that he purports to love. Um, that's really scary. That's scarier than, you know... Uh, any kind of supernatural twist you could put on the story. And I think it was super smart of Lee 1L to, to put kind of a tech bent on the story here as well. Um, so I think that's a really great track to do. I would like to see more of that, of considering, sitting down to consider like, okay, what does the Wolfman look like in the year 2020? And that doesn't necessarily mean like physically, what does he look like? But like, what is a, what is at the heart of this story? And what is a version of that that would resonate with audiences today? I think that that could be a smart way to go. I don't necessarily think you should just have Blumhouse do every single monster and have them all be kind of these low budget, really spooky horror movies. Um, that could turn out great, but you know, I like diversity and in, in my franchises. So I'd like to see some different stuff. Yeah. Like I would, yeah, I think this notion, I, I'm glad we've kind of moved past the, like, well, if Marvel's doing it, we all have to be Marvel. Like there, there was that time, especially like in the wake of the event of the first Avengers film, like we all have to do this. And then none of it came together. No, no yeah. one was able to really successfully copy that formula. Um, and I think that's, you know, I, I feel like Universal is making the smarter play here with, you know, if it doesn't cost that much relative to other projects, give 7 million to someone and, you know, let them, let them take a shot. And I know that that, and I know that that's sort of a difficult thing to do. And especially with like the way, the way companies are demanding things be done. Like, I mean, something important to remember is, you know, Comcast owns Universal, you know, AT&T owns Warner Brothers, uh, Disney is its own behemoth. And everyone sort of like wants, you know, the, they're these shareholders and they're like, we need things to be as big as possible. Like you can, like, we don't care if you spend 200 million because the investment we want back, the return we want on that is a, is a billion. So you'll spend 200 million on a film, but we'll get 800 million in return. And obviously I'm 
oversimplifying how the numbers work out, but that's the idea that you spend more to make more. So, you know, Invisible Man is not like, ooh, you know, eye popping. You know, the Invisible Man is not going to make a billion dollars worldwide. But I think it does at least make a case for itself, especially if it has legs in the weeks and months to come, that you can get a really good return relative to initial investment. And I will now say something nice about Joker. Joker kind of showed, at least it makes the case that if you want to make something that doesn't cost a ridiculous amount of money, if you have the right IP and the right vision, and again, I don't like that film, but enough (laughs) people do. The idea, I mean, at the end of the day, like whether I like it or not, Joker made a billion dollars worldwide off a budget of 50 million. And that's for, if you're Warner Brothers, you're thrilled about that because that was a low risk kind of thing. Like you only spent 50 million, you got a billion back on it. And that doesn't typically happen, but, at least now, if you're universal, you can kind of make the case like, okay, well, we've spent a lot of money on a monster movie and didn't get a good return. Let's try spending not a lot of money and getting a better return. So is it better? You know, that's the thing. Like, you may not make ridiculous amounts of money, but you're certainly not going to lose money. Like, Invisible Man was never going to lose money. There was no yeah. scenario where that happens. So I, I would feel like if you can set yourself up to sort of be in that space of, you know, how do we, I don't want to say how do we win, but like, how, how do we have that diversity, but while still making it profitable, I would say go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the key. I think that's what everyone's chasing. But I think, as you said, luckily we've seen kind of the Marvel fever die down a bit in terms of other studios trying to chase that cinematic universe thing. Cause it's not, it didn't work. Like it, it didn't pan out. I wrote a, an entire article about it. Like, uh, like two years ago, I think um, we recently rebumped it on the website. But you know, there was supposed King Arthur: Legend of the Sword was supposed to kick off a franchise. Uh, Robin Hood, the new Robin Hood, was supposed to kick off a franchise. And these were all like they had these interconnected cinematic universe ideas. Where you know, with King Arthur, there would be a Merlin movie and there would be a Guinevere movie um, to kind of like sprawl out the story. But if you don't get it right the first time, if you're not dialing in on a really intriguing story with intriguing characters, none of that matters. So luckily, I think we've kind of learned that because studios are now tired of spending so much money and time only for those things to just kind of falter and fall by the wayside. Uh, And it really does feel like Joker and the initial man are the way forward for a lot of these studios where they're just going to allow filmmakers to kind of put their own stamps on things. Because I think there was some apprehension early on that, you know, with the success of Marvel, there was this whole idea of like, you know, oh, audiences would be confused. We can't have them confused with the properties. We can't, um, you know, we have to make sure everything makes sense on the big screen. But I don't think that's how most audience members work. I mean, people who are buying tickets to see like what, six, seven, eight movies a year are not overly concerned with whether Joker fits into the Zack Snyder DCEU that was previously established. They're just going to see a movie that they think looks good. And I think that's right. kind of the bottom line. And that's the thing like about Marvel is they didn't start out at the beginning of like, if, you know, the second film wasn't like, now it's a, now it's a, now it's a universe. You know, I mean, yeah. there are, there are a couple nods and in incredible Hulk to being like, Oh, he lives in the same universe as Iron Man, but it wasn't like, and now they're all friends. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they kind of, been, they, you know, their, their starting point was how do we make Iron Man a compelling character? How do we make Thor a compelling character? How do we make Captain America a compelling character? How do we build this each one individually? 
and then we're going to make the gamble that you like all these characters together. We're going to put them in the same movie. And that yeah. was, a I'm not going to diminish. I'm not going to say like, Oh, well, obviously this was going to work out. You know, that was a huge gamble, but it paid off. But other people have just attempted that. And I think you're right. Like if you, you don't really, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I'll only see an invisible man movie. If he is at some point going to meet Frankenstein, like that's not really what viewers care about. I think for this movie and the reason why it was a hit this past weekend is because it's a very easy to understand horror film. Like the, the marketing made it like very, the, the trailers were well, really well done and there was no confusion about what this film was about. You know, there was no bait and switch. I mean, I'm going to, I don't know if you know what the cinema score was for it. For invisible man. Yeah. As uh, B plus B plus really. I, I, I mean, that is good. I would have thought a, because cinema for scores, movies, it's, it's tough. It is tough because yeah. I guess for, I, I don't know. I always say like for me, cinema score is, does it do what it says on the tin? <laughs> you know, like, does it, does it, I mean, and to me, you have not been misled with invisible man unless you were like, he could have been more invisible. <laughs> I guess I was promised full invisibility. I don't know. You know, you know what movie got a terrible cinema score was downhill. I, uh, I overheard someone yelling at the ticket ticker, uh, begging for a refund because they thought they were going to see a Will Ferrell, Julia Louis-Dreyfus comedy and didn't sign up for a relationship drama. Oops. If yeah. only there were some way to be informed about movies in the 21st century. <laughs> oh, well. Guess, yeah. guess there, was, there was no way to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that one's on you. That's on you. In this day and age, if you're not going to just check, a, read a review, read a synopsis. Come on. Come yeah. on. All right. Anyway. So, yeah, I, I feel like for Universal Monsters going forward, there is, um, I'll be curious to see what the studio does. I think it would be the wrong lesson to be like, make them all like Invisible Man. But I would say the right lesson is, you know, take, you know, listen to filmmakers and see what works best for these characters and find a new way to spin them. Because I feel like if you just try to do like a remake of what, the original was, but also if you try to, if you try to force it into a box that it doesn't want to fit in, you're not going to get a good film. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and it may, and this is kind of a facile conclusion, but it's also good to have good storytellers, you know? And I just never, I was never really sold with Alex Kurtzman and Chris Morgan, you know, being like, yeah, we'll take it from here. I'm like, sure you will. Sure. You will. Yeah. Guys. Yeah. So really, but, really excited for Ruben Fleischer's uncharted movie. <laughs> that you know if i can go off on a slight tangent so you know this um uh birds of prey underperformed or didn't under well it didn't yeah, yeah it, under it, underperformed. it underperformed is that fair it's a fair i think that's fair to yeah. say and my concern is like what happens if like you know if birds of prey underperforms and then like black widow underperforms and eternals underperforms and these are all superhero movies with with female directors i don't think wonder woman 1984 is going to underperform i don't yeah. um yeah. but those are three films with you know female directors and if they underperform like well i guess just women had their shot you know they had their shot and i'm like motherfucker look how many shots ruben fucking fleischer got <laughs> yeah for being deeply uninteresting for most of his career he made one hit movie followed by 30 minutes or less, which was not a hit. I think it like did fine for the studio. Gangster Squad, which was a bust. Um, 
did he do anything after Gangster Squad? Before he did like television. He did some. T- he yeah. did like he directed like he directed the pilot for Superstore, um, and he, I think he directed okay. some other pilots as well. But then, like, yeah, he was kind of gone until yeah. He did like Santa Clarita Diet and stuff. And yeah, he was on the short list for uh, Ant Man when uh, mm. Edgar Wright left. So he had apparently been like you know on the radar of Hollywood for whatever reason. And Venom, like, you know, obviously he gave them exactly what the studio wanted with that movie. Like, it did really well. And they rewarded him by saying, don't come back for the sequel. Yeah. Well, I think that was on him. I think he just decided to kind of tap out. Mm. I mean, he went on and on and made the Zombieland sequel. And then the same studio asked him to come and do Uncharted. That's true. Yeah. Sony likes him. So good belief for him. I guess my larger point is, is that uh, my tangent is it's ridiculous about who gets you know, multiple chances and who only gets one. Yeah. 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 I mean, Alex Kurtzman, you know, cost universal a lot of money with the universe, with the dark universe being scrapped and then was handed the keys to the star Trek franchise on television, which granted, like he has a ton of experience in television. He comes from the world of TV producing, but still like, that's a really big consolation prize. Yeah. For just kind of blowing up that whole thing. Yeah. Anyway, here's to failing upwards. Yeah, which someone tried to pin on Tom Cruise. There was a hit story in Hollywood Reporter shortly after uh, The Mummy came out that was like, oh, all of the decisions were Tom Cruise, you know, taking control of the movie. Okay, sure. Yeah. Let's let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. That's why the Mission Impossible films are bad. Yeah, yeah. That's why, you know, all of the, uh, you know, Jack Reacher, all of these movies that he's had a really strong hand in, in creating and producing and starring in are terrible. So. Yeah. Not to say you can't make a bad movie. Oblivion's not great, but I I think that was incredibly unfair because there is no way that Universal would hand over the keys to this massive franchise to just like, oh yeah, Tom Cruise, whatever you want, sure. Right. It just I mean it just doesn't work that way. No. No. There were a bunch of hands in that pot and I they did him dirty after that movie was a bust by just like kind of I don't know who did him dirty, but like there was that whole Hollywood reporter hit piece that distanced the studio and Alex Kurtzman from. And, and I, to be honest, I think, you know, it's kind of embarrassing. And that is that a Hollywood reporter even ran it because it was clearly a hit piece. It was, yeah, it was pretty, it was not well, it was clearly someone trying to get out in front of who's going to be to blame for it. And Hollywood reporters, let me help you with that. Yeah. Yeah. That was not great. That was not great. Um, was it Hollywood reporter or variety? Mm, we may be mischaracterizing. I think it might, it might have been Variety. Uh, I can't remember. It was a trade, but, you know, that's was, respected. That, yeah. you know, usually does really great work. But that piece in particular, because I think a lot of people took notice of, like, this is kind of gross. Like, this is not a, <laughs> this is not just a clean and cl- cut, like, oh, here's what actually happened behind the scenes. This is this, yeah, this very is a- specifically pinning blame on one actor. Right. Anyway, and look, if you want to blame Tom Cruise for things, there's a list of them. <laughs> I, I, yeah. You know what they are. We all know what they are. Yeah. <laughs> it rhymes with blyontology. But, you know, let's, let's be fair about what is and is not to blame. Um, okay. Anything else about uh, Dark Universe going forward or Universal Monsters going forward? I'm just curious to see what they greenlight and do. Uh, I mean, I talked to Paul Feig last month, and he said he was working on the, the set after Dark Army. Um, which Universal, I guess, gave some notes on. So it's not like they're just green lighting everything. Sure. But, um, you know, Blumhouse 
definitely Jason Blum has said he wants to make more Universal monster movies, and I feel like after this, they're going to give Blumhouse the keys to other monsters. So what I'll, you, I'll be very curious to see. What do you th- think would be the strongest next play? Hmm. I'm trying to think, what is there? So I mean, technically, I, I mean, if you want to look at their box set, like the Universal Monsters box set, it is mm-hmm. Frankenstein, Dracula, Bride of Frankenstein, Wolfman, uh, Invisible Man, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, and Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, I think Bride of Frankenstein probably, um, especially with that take that was in development with Bill Condon directing, but I, I think that's probably fallen by the wayside. But mm-hmm. That, you know, that feels like it could give you a, a unique way into it. Dracula, you know, they just had a Netflix series and it's pretty, he's pretty ubiquitous and uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, we just had Shape of Water. See, so. you say, yeah, I know we've had just had Shape of Water, but since that wasn't officially the Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. And I also feel like Creature from the Black Lagoon, see, that would be my pick because I think Creature from the Black Lagoon, you could do something really interesting as sort of an environmental story. Oh, like as sort of eco horror as it is, yeah, as it were. that's fair. That's fair. So that's just my thought on it. Cool. Um, all right. So let's move on to recently watched. What have you seen lately? Uh, well, after Invisible Man, I remember that everyone was raving about Upgrade, which was Lee Wannell's uh, previous movie that he made it at Blumhouse. Um, so I watched it. It's on um, HBO, I think. I think it's on HBO right now. I watched it on demand through one of those uh, movie channels. And uh, I really loved it. It's kind of like a sci-fi revenge thriller. Um, Logan Marshall Green plays this guy who's paralyzed and his wife is killed in a, um, a mugging and it takes place in the future and he's implanted with this chip that gives him, um, his ability to walk again, but the chip is controlling his body. So it's not like the chip allows him to walk. The chip is doing the walking for him. Um, but he can kind of communicate with this chip, uh, which is a voice inside his head. So it, it has this kind of uh, – there's this kind of wry comedic tone to it that makes it a lot of fun. And the action uh, shot with this kind of motion control camera is really mind-blowing. Um, and I liked the ending. I thought it was just – you know, I, I thought it was pretty perfect for this kind of sci-fi uh, story. I won't spoil the ending, but um, I, I kind of enjoyed where it went there. Um, but – I think Logan Marshall Green, Green gives a really charming performance in this movie. Um, and if you're a fan of uh, kind of gritty sci-fi, um, but with a comedic bend, it's not kind of like overbearingly like bleak. Um, I think you'll like it. So it's definitely worth checking out. I was surprised to learn that it came out through like Blumhouse Tilt. So it was like straight to digital. Um, I don't know. I feel, I, I feel like it's comparable to John Wick. Um, it's kind of how I would describe it, like a sci-fi version of John Wick. So, I think that's interesting. I, I still think it feels more like Venom to me, but it is a bit like Venom, yeah. But uh, I liked it, and I liked Logan Marshall Green in it as well. Yeah, I thought he was really good. I have, you know, the thing is, is like Logan Marshall Green. I'm like, is this a poor man's Tom Hardy? And he's not. <laughs> he's not. But <laughs> it's hard to because first off, he kind of looks like him. But secondly, like he's really good. Like I, I mean, when I finally saw The Invitation, he was great in that. He's great in that. I will always, uh, I mean, I watched the OC and so he will forever be, um, uh, Trey Atwood from the OC to me, mm. even though he's, he was only in a handful of episodes. He just really made a really striking, uh, 
striking impression. And you know, like when you watch long running TV shows and you see someone on that, you like, it's just really hard to remove them from that. So that's what I'll always remember him as. So when Prometheus came out and everyone was like, is that Tom Hardy? And I was like, no, that's Trey from the OC. Come on guys. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Watch the OC. Um, cool. Well, for me, um, I recently watched actually ties into the movie we discussed today, which is unbelievable, which is another story about not believing women. Uh, and this is based on a true story. It's based off a, a this American life episode uh, about a young woman who was, uh, raped in her apartment by a masked attacker. But, um, when she went to report, she reported that she was raped and then, uh, she was, a, she was a foster kid. And so, um, two of her foster mothers went to the police and they're like, well, she's been acting strange. So I don't know if I told, you know, she, they didn't quite say she's making it up, but she, they planted the seeds of doubt in the heads of these male detectives who then kind of call her back. And in the, in the series, unbelievable on Netflix, she's played by Kate, uh, Caitlin Deaver. Um, she, you know, having these authority figures kind of call her story into question starts backing away from it. And her whole life gets upended because these people won't believe her. And then she doesn't feel comfortable sticking with her story because the process is so cold hearted and arduous. And then meanwhile, over in another state, uh, three years later, these two detectives played by Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver are investigating another rapist who has a, or investigating a rape, a serial rapist who has a similar uh, MO. And so you're following two storylines throughout Unbelievable. One is Caitlin Deaver's character dealing with the fallout of being accused of making a false report. And then the actual work of trying to solve the case by the two detectives. And then they eventually come, those two stories eventually come together. Um, and, you know, if you've listened to the This American Life episode, you, you get the gist of it in a much shorter time than Unbelievable. I think as well as Unbelievable is made, I do think it suffers from the Netflix problem of, oh, this is two episodes too long. Most Netflix dramas are two episodes too long. I don't know why. I don't know why it's that number. I don't know how. It just always is. Um... And yet I'm not too mad about it because the performances are so good. I am now like a diehard Merritt Weaver stan. <laughs> yeah, she's so good. Like now yeah. I need to like get off my ass and finally watch Godless, which she was in yeah. before. Uh, unbelievable. Like, and so like I'm, and I'm really excited to see her in that series run with Donald Gleason. Um, she's just great. But like also Caitlin Deaver, who's like, I've been a fan of since short term 12. Like she's, amazing in this like the performances are just really stunning stuff uh and so it is it the show itself does kind of fall into that category i was reminded a lot of uh when they see us which is this is a story it really happened the characters are gonna suffer a lot it's an but it's an important story and so like the thing about unbelievable is like it's not an easy watch like and i get that like if you wanted to pop on netflix and like pop on something easy you have those options but i also think unbelievable is worth your time. And then if you don't want to devote the time, at least take an hour to listen to the, this American life episode that it's based on. Uh, Cause it's an important story. Yeah. I will admit I have not seen when they see us or unbelievable yet for those reasons. Yeah. Like I get it. Like I sympathize. Like I'm not out here being like, you should watch hard things in your time off. Yeah. Yeah. Every, you know, 
pop up on Netflix and it's like, what do you want to watch? Do you want to finally watch Unbelievable? Uh, not or would yet. you like to watch Office reruns? Yeah, <laughs> nice, <that's>... comforting Office reruns. <laughs> Although we watch the DVDs so we can watch the deleted scenes. There you scenes. go. Exactly. Because physical media rules. It does rule. All right. Cool. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.